Good morning again. Turn to Judges chapter 15 with me this morning as we continue our look at the life of Samson. I will attempt something unusual this morning. That's to try to get through a whole chapter in one go. Judges chapter 15, and we'll read from verse 1 to 20. Read with me. But it came to pass within a while after, in the time of wheat harvest, that Samson uh, visited his wife with a kid. And he said, I will go into my wife into the chamber. But her father would not suffer him to go in. And her father said, I verily thought that thou hadst utterly hated her. Therefore I gave her to thy companion. Is not her younger sister fairer than she? Take her, I pray thee, instead of her. And Samson said concerning them, Now shall I be more blameless than the Philistines, though I do them a displeasure. And Samson went and caught three hundred foxes, and took firebrands, and turned tail to tail, and put a firebrand in the midst between the two tails, when he had set the brands on fire, he let them go into the standing corn of the Philistines and burnt up both the shocks and also the standing corn with the vineyards and olives. And the Philistines said, Who hath done this? And they answered, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he had taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burnt her and her father with fire. And Samson said unto them, Though you have done this, yet will I be avenged of you, and after that I will cease. And he smote them hip and thigh with a great slaughter, and he went down and dwelt in the top of the rock Etam. Then the Philistines went up and pitched in Judah, and spread themselves in Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why are ye come up against us? And they answered, To bind Samson are we come up, to do to him as he hath done to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went to the top of the rock Eton and said to Samson, Knowest thou not that the Philistines are rulers over us? What is this that thou hast done unto us? And he said unto them, As they did unto me, so have I done unto them. And they said unto him, We are come down to bind thee, that we may deliver thee into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said unto them, Swear unto me that you will not fall upon me yourselves. And they spake unto him, saying, No, but we will bind thee fast, and deliver thee into their hand. But surely we will not kill thee. And they bound him with two new cords, and brought him up from the rock. And when he came unto Lehi, the Philistines shouted against him. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the cords that were upon his arms became as flax that was burnt with fire, and his bands loosed from off his hands. And he found a new jawbone of an ass, and put forth his hand, and took it, and slew a thousand men therewith. And Samson said with the jawbone of an ass, Heaps upon heaps with the jawbone of an ass, Have I slain a thousand men? And it came to pass, when he had made an end of speaking, that he cast away the jawbone out of his hand, and called that place Ramath-Lehi. And he was sore of thirst, called on the Lord, and said, Thou hast given this great deliverance into the hand of thy servants, Servant, and now shall I die for a thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? But God clave in hollow place that was in the jaw, and there came water thereout, 
And when he had drunk, his spirit came again, and he revived. Wherefore he called the name thereof Enkakor, Enhakor, which is in Lehi unto this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. Let's bring these things to the Lord. Father, we thank you once again for your word. Father, we thank you that uh, once again we can rely on every word and syllable within it. And we pray that you would give us understanding this morning. Lord, I pray that you would use me to convey this truth to my brethren this morning, that we might be challenged to live uh, more fruitful lives for you, that we'd seek to be more holy, that we'd continue to run, to run this race that you, that you have set before us, and, Father, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you once again for this time. May it bring you honour and glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In the history of God's interaction with men, or man, as we read in the Bible, we often find that God uses the evil perpetrated against his people or against uh, uh, good people um, to take them out of sin, to awaken them from their slumber, to purge them from their faults and to refine them to greater purity. So do you understand what I just said? So God uses the evil that the world does against Christians and against his people in Israel to actually purify them, to make them more holy. Great wrongs have often been used of God to free his people from the slavery of sin, to draw them to a deeper spiritual life through the suffering that they endure. This principle is found in the Old Testament as it is in the New. For example, when the Jews were led into captivity into Babylon, it was it became the catalyst to free them from the idolatry that they were sinking into. So God used the evil from the world to actually judge and refine his people and stop them from getting into a worse place than they were already in. The great persecution and trials that the early church experienced, okay, the, the, the Roman Empire coming against them, the Jews wanting to kill all the Christians, and we see that in Paul's life. Paul himself was a Jew, and his, his goal was to try and catch every Christian he could and stone them. The, the experience that the early church had um, actually was a catalyst to actually refine their own faith to make them stronger and to bring about God's plan. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So in Paul's eyes, what they're experiencing by being burnt at the stake, persecuted, chased, stoned, and everything, everything that went along with being a Christian in those days was a light affliction and didn't even compare with what was coming as a result of the persecution they were suffering. The persecution experienced by Christians in Jerusalem and Israel, guess what that did? It drove them out of Jerusalem and Israel. Remember God said, he wanted, the Lord said, you know, take this message, I want you to baptise in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost, I want you to go into all the world and do it. You know what made them go into all the world? The persecution that they actually experienced. It's interesting that we find that as, as a result of the persecution that the, many of the Christians experienced in Jerusalem and Israel, that they spread out throughout the Roman Empire and beyond and created an environment in which the gospel could be spread into all the world. Thus we have 
there's interesting, if you look at read some of the history books, some of the interesting stories we read about the apostles and where they ended up. For example, there are, there are stories of Andrew apparently going to Russia and wearing one of those big hats that they wear because it's cold over there. Thomas and Bartholomew went to Syria and India. Philip to North Africa, Matthew to Ethiopia, and there are, there are plenty more. So these guys who just grew up in, in Jerusalem okay, and, and, and spend, their, spend their, uh, their, their, their growing days in Israel um, end up being in places that were totally foreign to them. Now, some of those things may just be legends, but there's a lot of truth to them as well. So Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. So God uses even the bad things to actually refine his children. Sometimes the, ref the refining that we need for our faith comes through tests. It comes through trials. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 7 because I want you to take specific notice of this verse. When you're going through difficult times in your life, when you're going through trials, when you're being persecuted, this is a, a good verse to remember. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 7. He says there that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. What's more important, what's much more precious than gold and compared to the trial that you're going through is the refining of your faith. So when you do go through difficult times in your life, um, always consider that your faith is being tried and proven. And to make gold pure, unfortunately, you need fire. So when you go through difficult times in your life, if you trust in God, if you believe in, in who he is, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then the trial that you are going through, God will be using to refine you. The question is how you respond to that trial. Today, in the last two weeks, I've been talking about Samson as a rash, a reckless young man making decisions that were, were quite blind in, some, in some, some areas. He was driven by his emotions and driven by, by his desires. Today, we're going to see that despite rash, uh, Samson's rash and reckless decisions, God was achieving his purpose through Samson to judge the Philistines. Remember I said to you, God is continually working in the background of the story. But at the same time that he's actually achieving his purposes, God is also refining Samson. That even through Samson's bad decisions, God is using those things to actually refine Samson to be a more godly man and to understand his place and what God wanted for him. From a reckless young lad in chapter 14 to this passage today, we see Samson's focus begin to crystallise more upon the Philistines rather than himself and their evil. Because of the wrongs that would be done to him, he would fulfil the will of God for his life, but also 
realise his calling as a judge. Let's recap quickly. We saw that Samson's desire to have a Philistine woman ended up in a wedding that didn't go too well. In fact, it was a very chaotic wedding. It didn't finish well and, um, and, and Samson ended up uh, being betrayed by his own wife. Within one day, that seventh day of the wedding, he lost his bet because of the threats that the guests at his own wedding made towards his wife. He experienced the betrayal of his own wife, who actually told the secret of that or the answer to that riddle to them. And he'll now discover that they had given his wife to someone else when he went back to his dad's place. It came, let's, let's, let's read from the beginning here again, Judges 15 verse 1, it says, But it came to pass within a while after, in the time of wheat harvest, that Samson visited his wife with a kid. So Samson thought, this is my wife. He, did, he, had, he didn't think that this wasn't his wife. And he came there with a kid and he said, I will go in to my wife into the chamber, but her father would not suffer him to go in. And her father said, I verily thought that they had utterly hated her. And therefore I gave her to thy companion. Is not her younger sister fairer than she? Take her, I pray thee, instead of her. Okay, so the scripture doesn't tell us exactly how long it was before Samson went back uh, to, to be with his wife again. But we know that it was during the time of wheat harvest. And this becomes critical to the whole story here. Samson, it seems, was under the impression that he could just go back and be with his wife. He went through his time of anger, he got over it by the looks of it, and he wanted to be with her again. So he was under the impression that he could just go back and be with his wife since they were married. But when he failed to return to her after he paid off his debt, her father assumed he doesn't want her anymore. So he gave her, as the father, to someone else. But Samson still considered her to be his. And in, if you look at this in verse 2, her father offers Samson the younger sister. He says, oh, okay, I've already done this one over here, but why don't you go for the younger sister? I'm happy to give her to you. She's even prettier than, than uh, the wife that you chose. So it seems as if Samson's father-in-law didn't hate Samson, and he was actually making him a genuine offer. And maybe he felt bad for what he did. Maybe he realised he'd done something wrong by offering Samson's wife to someone else. But the offer seemed genuine on his part. But from Samson's point of view, after he'd been, one, betrayed by her, probably forgiven her, um, going back there to, to take his wife... Um, the whole thing seemed crazy. That he had been done a great wrong. He felt utterly betrayed. Again. Look at verse 3. And Samson said concerning them, Now shall I be more blameless than the Philistines, though I do them a displeasure. Samson felt now that they'd done this to him that he felt fully justified to be revenged on them for the wrong that they'd, been, that they'd done to him. He would now be avenged for their treachery. And let's see how he does it. In verse 4 it says, And Samson went and caught 300 foxes 
and took firebrands and turned tail to tail and put a firebrand in the midst between two tails. And when he had set the, the brands on fire, he let them go into the standing corn of the Philistines and burnt up, burnt up both the shocks and also the standing corn with the vineyards and olives. Did a good job of it. This was not something done in a quick fit of rage. How long would it take to catch 300 foxes? That's, that's quite a job. I mean, has anyone ever caught one fox here? Two foxes. No foxes. All right. Well, Samson must have had a pretty good technique for catching foxes because he caught 300 of them. All right? Now, whether he set traps with, for them or whether he, he lured them or whatever he did, he managed to catch 300 foxes and put them aside. Then he grabs two foxes and ties them tail to tail and puts a piece of wood or some kindling in the middle of them. And when he's got them all tied up and the wood and the, the, the actual the firebrand in the middle ready to go, he lights it and lets them go in the middle of the Philistines' um, crops. His desire here was to get even with them for what they'd done to him, for their treachery and for opposing Israel. So, when a fox has a, f a flame um, at the end of its tail, will it run quickly or will it run slowly? It runs pretty quick. So, he managed through this particular system to actually destroy the greatest amount of their crops as he possibly could. And he achieved his purposes because he got them pretty rolled up. With this, with this method, he guaranteed the greatest possible destruction. Samson achieved his purpose. He destroyed the cornfields, the vineyards, and the olive groves as well. Now, mind you, it was harvest time. What would you hate most? That you lose your crop just before you're about to get it? Do you remember what they did to him at the wedding? Do you remember when they found out the answer to the thing? They waited until when to tell him the answer? They waited until right very last minute. And now he was doing the same back to them. Samson achieved his purpose. He certainly achieved his goal. But the story doesn't finish here. And it wasn't supposed to. In God's mind, it was not supposed to finish here. Because God knew very well the Philistines would do what? They'd want to get even again. So look at verse 6. Then the Philistines said, Who hath done this? And they answered, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he had taken his wife and gave her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burnt her and her father with fire. And Samson said unto them, Though you have done this, yet will I be avenged on you, and after that I will cease. It's interesting. The Philistines themselves still thought that this Timnite, this Philistine man, was Samson's father-in-law. They weren't actually aware of what he had actually done. But in their fit of rage against what had happened, so they blamed that man, and they blamed her. Do you remember the accusation they made against her at the wedding? They said, you've brought us here to fleece us. You've brought us here so you can take all our goods. Because you remember the, the bet that Samson made with them, or the riddle that he gave them, was designed to actually 
win garments and to win sheets from them. So they became so um, angry about that, they threatened to kill her, and now they had. They actually killed her. They blamed her and her father for actually getting him into this particular mess. When they find out that Samson was the one who was responsible for the destruction, they did the unthinkable. They killed his wife and they, they killed her father. Once again, when Samson finds out, he decides that he must be avenged against them. I want you to keep something in mind here. Samson was what you would call a judge. So he felt more than justified in actually the sentence that he was going to bestow upon them. When Samson finds out, he says once again, I'm going to be avenged on you. Now notice this, this thing we call tit for tat. In all of this, God was using each to and fro, act and react, eye for eye, to actually judge the Philistines. Because at every point, they could not win. All we see here, all we seem to see, is Samson's personal offences. So they, they're doing something worse and worse to him. They, they, they cheated with that, with that uh, test that he gave them. They, um, they, they killed his wife. They gave his wife to someone else. It seems as if there seems to be like a, a continual escalation of this to and fro, back and forth, retaliation and offence. Look at verse 7. And Samson said unto them, Though you have done this, yet will I be avenged of you. And what does he say at the end of this verse? And after that, I'll cease. Samson says, Though you have done this, you have killed my wife and her father and my father-in-law. I'm going to be avenged on you. And after that, that's it for me. So Samson declares that he'll be avenged once again. This is a personal thing for Samson. Because they had murdered his wife and her family, he states he's going to do this once. But they aren't going to settle for his um, justice. They won't stand for it. And God knows this very well. You know, the amazing thing here is the, the absolute courage and fearlessness that Samson actually shows. He, does, he has no regard for his own life in this particular case. He challenges them directly. He basically tells them, I'm going to get even with you again. What we should note here is Samson's quality of absolute courage in the face of many numbers against him. Can I just make a point? Do you remember the who threatened his wife with being burnt alive and burning her father's house? It was the 30 men that, they were, that were actually at his wedding. Is that correct? So who do you think were the ones that actually burnt her with fire now? It was the same guys who were actually at his wedding. But Samson has at least 30 guys, 30 men who are opposing him. And he says, I'm going to get even with you for what you've done. What this indicates is that 
he was well aware that the Lord was with him and that he would protect him as he stood against the enemy. And one thing I'd like you to learn from this is that confidence in the Lord will strengthen you in the face of all of life's challenges. You see, Samson learned something as he was growing up. He learned that God was protecting him. Do you remember when he first walked into that, that, that vineyard? And the Bible says that a lion came roaring against him. Well, you know what he did? The Bible says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he, he literally ripped that lion apart. He killed the lion with his bare hands. In your life, you've probably come against things. You've probably experienced situations where God has actually answered your prayer. And the next time something comes up, what you should be doing is learning from the past things that God has done. See, one of the things we, we rejoice in over here is the many answers to prayers that God's already given us. But too often, we find ourselves in a situation where the next thing that comes up, all of a sudden we fall back down into a heap and we think, oh, what am I going to do now? But if we simply remembered all the times that God had actually answered our prayers before, all the times that he actually been there for us and led us through these situations, we would face those times with much more courage. Samson had experienced already a number of times God had worked within him. God had saved him. And now as he finds himself in a situation again, with at least 30 men opposing him, he knows God's going to be with him. Knowing the Lord and trusting in his strength, because that's what Samson had to, had to trust in, not his own strength. It was actually God who came upon him to achieve these things, supplies great courage to us in the face of any trial. So my question to you this morning is what trials do you face today? What challenges do you have coming against you? Samson remembered and used that knowledge to face greater and greater odds as we see in the scriptures here, and you can too. So let's see how Samson was revenged for the murder of his wife. Look at verse 8. It says, And he smote them hip and thigh with a great slaughter. And he went down and dwelt in the top of the rock, Etam. The term hip and thigh. How often have you, have you slaughtered someone hip and thigh? Have you ever done anything hip and thigh before? I've never done anything hip and thigh. It's, an idiot. it's something we call an idiom. Essentially, he killed them all with his bare hands. He slaughtered a lot of them. And there would probably have been at least 30 men there that, that would have come against him and that he actually managed to beat. This was a, a, a victory that God gave him completely. Once again, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he was able to defeat them even though he was greatly outnumbered. The Philistines miscalculated here and they would pay for their evil. And this is the thing we find is their downfall. You know, when someone gets to a point and they say, I better cut it here because I'm, I might, I'll stick with my loss. I'll stay with my loss because if I go into this any deeper, I'm going to lose more. You ever been in that situation or seen people in that situation? Well, they didn't get this. They didn't, they didn't understand this particular principle. And they were getting themselves into a downward spiral of revenge and counter-revenge. Uh, let me give you an, a, a principle here. 
The spiral, the downward spiral of revenge is always a road to ruin. When people begin to play the game of revenge against each other and their pride becomes the main motivator, when someone hurts your pride or someone does something bad against you or someone's, someone's offended you in some way, so the first fleshly thought that would come to your mind is I'm going to do something back to them, I'm not going to do this for them or, or I'm going to retaliate in some particular way, always ends in grief because it never ends. We see this principle especially with the Philistines who could not be outdone by a Jewish judge. I mean, the Jews were under their dominion, were, under, were subjugated by them. They couldn't let Samson win, could not possibly let him win. They had to up the ante each time. But what they did not know is that you can't keep upping the ante against God. You will lose every time. And God was using their own pride against them to defeat them through Samson. They could not win this tit for tat. The Philistines could not allow them to have been beaten by a Jew. When Samson proposed a riddle, do you remember? Say, he proposed a riddle. Oh, we can't let him beat us here. Let's do whatever we can to get the answer to this thing. So they threatened his wife in a wedding. Once again, they upped the ante each time. When the crops burnt, they had to up the ante again and murder his wife and his father-in-law. They couldn't have left him. They couldn't have actually taken him and put him in prison for a year, could they? No, they had to go that next step. So once again, the stakes are raised again, and they will lose again. The Philistines are finding out they can't win against God. But for us, the lesson is, don't ever get caught in a spiral of tit-for-tat with someone else. It's not what God wants us to do. There's a lesson in here for us, and we should always be careful of our motives in the way we deal with people. If we seek revenge, what we're essentially saying is we're not trusting in God to take care of things. We want to take care of them ourselves. Look at verse 9. Then the Philistines went up and pitched in Judah and spread themselves in Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why are you come up against us? And they answered, to bind Samson are we come up, to do to him as he hath done to us. So the Philistines believed that the men of Judah would defend Samson or thought that that his own people might defend him, actually go in there with a sizable number of men, probably all armed. And they set up camp at Lehi. But when the men of Judah see these Philistines come in and set up camp over there, they get afraid. They want to know what's going on. Why are you guys coming up against us? What have we done? And they said, well, no, we're coming up here because Samson killed a number of us. Mind you, they didn't tell them that they were... He was outnumbered probably at least 30 to 1. So then it says... In verse 11, then 3,000 men of Judah, (laughs) that's an interesting number, went to the top of the rock Etam and said to Samson, Knowest thou not that the Philistines are rulers over us? What is this that thou hast done unto us? And he said unto them, As they did unto me, so have I done unto them. So this number, 3,000, an interesting one. 3,000 men of Judah go to catch him. It tells us at least two things. It tells us the men of Judah 
would rather turn in their own judge and countrymen than to fight against the Philistines. Because you know something, if the Philistines didn't have that sort of number, well, I mean, if you can get 3,000 men together, you've got a decent-sized army. But instead of actually saying to the Philistines, get off our turf, this is, our, this is one of ours, he's one of our judges, we are going to defend him, they take 3,000 men and go to get Samson to hand him over. It shows how fearful they were of the Philistines. They were absolutely scared of them. They were under their subjugation. They had dominion over them. And the second thing it shows us is they also knew Samson was plenty strong. You don't need 3,000 people to go and catch someone. So what were they expecting Samson was going to do? That he was going to try and fight his way out of this. So 3,000 men, it's a strange one. If they believed it, if they believed though that Samson, which I find strange, if they knew Samson was so strong that they needed 3,000 men to actually go and, and bring him in, why wouldn't they rally behind him and him be their leader and they could go off into victory? Well, I don't know the answer to that. Scriptures don't, doesn't actually give us that indication, but it seems in all of Samson's life he was a bit of a maverick. He was a bit of a guy who did things on his own. He wasn't like your Gideons and, and, and those other ones who we see were able to rally people around them. He was a guy who managed to do things on his own, off his own bat. It may have had something to do with Samson's moral weakness. They may have thought to themselves, when they said to him, what have you done to us here? You notice? They probably knew that he'd tried to marry a Philistine woman. They said, look, look what he's done to us now. He's gotten involved with these Philistines and now they're coming against us. So they, they might be thinking to themselves, well, mate, you got yourself into this. This is your issue. You're going to have to pay for it. Maybe they were just absolutely too afraid. Verse 12. And they said unto him, We are come down to bind thee, that we may deliver thee into the hand of the Philistines. And Samson said unto them, Swear unto me that you will not fall upon me yourselves. And they spake unto him, saying, No, but we will bind thee fast and deliver thee into their hand, but surely we will not kill thee. And they bound him with two new cords and brought him up from the rock. The men of Judah were set to betray their own fellow Israelites and turn him over to the Philistines. They knew they were delivering him over to, what do you think? Do you think they were handing him over to be tried in a court of law with a lawyer and, uh, and maybe they'd give him a sentence of a couple of years or something like that? They were handing him over, knowing full well the Philistines would kill him. So this is a betrayal by his own, by his own countrymen. They were delivering him to a death, death sentence. But they were more concerned about their own peace and safety than of his. That they had every intention of turning him over to the Philistines is demonstrated by the fact that they used new cords and ropes. These weren't cords and ropes that were weathered or worn or they used, they used brand new ones to make sure that he actually was held fast. To his credit, Samson makes no move to defend himself. He doesn't fight them. He doesn't kill any of them. He doesn't, he doesn't retaliate against his own brethren, even though they're actually betraying him at this particular time. 
But he does get them to swear, to say, listen, I'm happy to go with you. I will go with you, but don't kill me yourselves. And they said, no, we're not going to kill you ourselves. We'll just hand you over. So he agrees, and he he allows himself to be bound, which he, he had the strength to break anyway. And he lets his own brethren take him to the uh, Philistines. Another good point about Samson. He showed restraint. He showed restraint even though he was being betrayed by his own people. You know, sometimes in our lives, those who are closest to us hurt us the most. And those who are closest to you will always hurt you the most. Because those who aren't close to you don't really hurt that much if they betray you. But the ones who are closest to you, when they let you down, when they do wrong, when they betray you, are the ones who hurt the most. Samson, he was being let down by his own people. But he did not retaliate against them. And this is actually a positive lesson to take from Samson here, that he was not willing to hurt or retaliate against the people that were closest to him. And there's no excuse for Christians to get even with brethren. Absolutely no excuse. If a Christian does something wrong against you, or one of your family members does something wrong to you, there is absolutely no justification to actually fight against them. There is no excuse for Christians to retaliate against other Christians. The Bible says that we are to practice the art of turning the other cheek first in our own home. First with our own brethren and our own family. And then with others in the world. It's inevitable. I'll let you in on a little secret here. It's inevitable that when you are close with people around you, that when we interact more often with each other, that will actually upset each other one way or the other. That will let each other down one way or the other. I'm not, I don't know about you guys, but I'm not perfect here. So I've managed to probably offend a number of people. My hope is that when I do offend, that there's grace that can come from the other side. Have I been offended? Yeah, been offended. And that's something that I learn as well to do with each other. You see, because God uses our own imperfections to help us to grow. Remember, all things work together for good. Even the faults that we have with each other and the way we, we interact with each other. And we, we might have a conversation and then later on say, oh, my mate, probably shouldn't have said that. Ever had that? God even uses our own weaknesses to help refine each other. So we are to practice the art of turning the other cheek with each other first. And if we can't turn the cheek with each other, what chance do we have of turning it with the world? If we can't turn the other cheek, if we can't grow and learn to live in grace and love with each other, what chance do we have of being a good witness out there? Do you remember one of the things where Jesus said they will know that you are my disciples, my disciples, by what? By the love that you have one for another. One of the distinguishing attributes, characteristics of a Christian is that it's obvious, clearly obvious, that they love the brethren, even when they're wronged. Samson had this one down pat. Let's look at verse 23. 
Sorry, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. There are two th- scriptural principles that are taught in Matthew. And the funny thing is, they apply to us both ways, in both directions. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, it says, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar... So if you want to do business with God, if you want to, to, to do your Christian duty, okay, and there remember, or rememberest that thy brother hath aught, that's anything, against thee, leave there thy gift... Before the altar. Go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. There's a principle here that it's so important for us to live in harmony with each other, to live in love and forgiveness with each other, that God says, Listen, you know something? If you're going to do something to me, if you're doing something for me, stop it. If you have, if you know that your brother is offended with you, don't even do it. Just hold it. What are you going to do for me? And go and fix it up with your brother first and then come and do your stuff with me. Because if you're doing stuff for God and you have and you know that there are people that you've offended and you just don't care, what does that say to you? What does that say about your relationship with God? It says a whole lot. Because if you don't care about the people around you, how can you possibly care about God? So God says, first of all, if you know your brother has something against you, if you've offended him somehow, if you've done something wrong to him that you need to make up for, go and fix that up first. If you don't know, well, you can't do anything about it, can you? If your brother hasn't told you that that you've offended him, well, that's why it's important for us to actually share when we are actually hurt, to actually share it with each other. Because, you know, most of the time, people walk around with offences because so-and-so's offended me and poor so-and-so has absolutely no idea what's going on. So we hold that grudge or that problem with us for ages and ages and that poor person is totally ignorant of it. Whereas if we told them in the beginning, they might have said, oh, I wasn't aware of it, I'm sorry. Fixed. Now look at the other way that says, Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, it tells us. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. It says there, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. I'm not going to go into all the other things because that talks about if if he's... then he refuses or whatever. But look at this, the spirit or the, the, the motive here. The motive is that if your brother has trespassed against you, what's the actual rule? What's the command or what's the principle that God wants you to follow? Go to him. Tell him. Because what's the goal? The goal is to gain your brother back. That's interesting, isn't it? Gain your brother back? If your brother's done something against you... I have to go and tell him because you're going to gain my brother back. But if my brother didn't know about it, it's not him who's holding back. It's me, isn't it? So it's important for us to share 
with each other and be honest with each other. Because oftentimes, if we don't communicate with each other, things just continue to degrade. So it tells it to us from both ways. If you think that your brother has something against you, go and just double-check with him first to make sure it's okay. And, if, and if, if you've offended someone else, go and see if you can fix it up as well. Okay? Do we have any, is there any way out there? Is there any excuse that we have to allow um, uh, problems and, and, um, and things to fester between each other? The answer is no. There's no reason to allow things to fester. So in this particular story, the men of Judah betray their own brother. And Samson allows himself to be defrauded by his own brethren without retaliating. Why? Because he had confidence that even though they would do this thing, that God would use it for good. He willingly went. He allowed them to actually do this thing to him. He had confidence in God, just as God had protected him from the lion and also gave him strength to avenge his wife. He also trusted that he would protect him now, even though he was going bound with his hands. Why would anyone allow themselves to be defrauded or betrayed? As Paul suggests the Corinthians do, unless they have confidence that God himself sees the wrong and will make good of it. If you do not have faith in God, you will struggle to forgive others because you ultimately will not trust that God sees what's going on and will take that into account and sort it out. Do you understand what I'm saying? You will want to take matters into your own hands. You will not be able to forgive because if you forgive and let it go, you have to leave it to God, who is the judge of all men, including the brethren. To his credit, Samson demonstrated a principle that many Christians fail to exhibit. Many Christians fail to do this very thing that Samson, who we say is a fleshly man with, his, with huge amount of faults, he has this one to his credit. That in the face of being wronged, he didn't seek retribution or retaliation. With all of his faults, Samson had this one correct. This occasion also demonstrates Samson's love for his own people and that God was indeed working on all those rough edges that he had. And we will now see the result of God's working in his life in this next victory. Look at verse 14. And when he came unto Lehi, the, the Philistines shouted against him, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the cords that were upon his arms became as flax that was burnt with fire, and his bands loosed from off his hands. And he found a new jawbone of an ass, and put forth his hand and took it and slew a thousand men therewith. And, the Samson, and Samson said, with the jawbone of an ass, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of an ass, have I slain a thousand men? I think he surprised himself. Then he made up a rhyme about it. And it came to pass, when he had made an end of speaking, that he cast away the jawbone out of his hand and called the place Ramoth Leo. So Samson arrives at the camp of the Philistines. There's a huge cheer. They start taunting and cheering because they've finally got their man and they're going to do what they want with him. But no sooner had they started to celebrate that the Lord once again came upon him. So it says that these new ropes that they put on him became like burnt um, string and it literally just fell off his hand. He finds a jawbone of an ass and it says it's a new one. 
If it was an old one, it would have been too brittle. Yeah? It has to be fairly new. And he kills and slays. So with that thing, he managed to, to, to beat a thousand of them. Would they have been armed? Yes. They would have been armed with swords and everything else they would have had their hands on. So he manages to beat them with the jawbone of an ass, of a donkey. And he's so amazed with this new victory that he makes this little, this little rhyme to celebrate the whole thing. But then he gets thirsty. It must be thirsty work to kill a thousand, to beat a thousand men. Thirsty. How long would it take you to, to, to beat a thousand? A thousand. Well, he must have been going for a while. I mean, even if you just do this, one, two, three, four, that's a, that's a lot of work. But he beat a thousand of them. And he says in verse 18, he was sore a thirst. That's pretty thirsty. And he called on the Lord and said, Thou hast given this great deliverance into the hand of thy servants. Who does he give glory to? God. And now shall I die for thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? But God clave in hollow place that was in the jaw, and there came water thereout. When he had drunk, his spirit came again, and he revived, and wherefore he called the name thereof Enhakor, which is in Lehi unto this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. The interesting thing that is in verse 19 is that the very name, see Lehi? See where he went, the place Lehi? It actually means the jaw. So the place was actually named the jaw, where he, where he was actually where they were camped. So that Samson finds a real jawbone, defeats a thousand Philistines, which was very symbolic, and the name he gives to that place is Ramoth Lehi. So you're probably well aware already. That's two words put together. Huh? And from what I can gather, the word Ramoth means the height of. So he, he literally named that place the height of a jawbone or the height of the jaw. I'm not sure exactly what that, what that means, to be honest with you, but that's what, the, what those two words mean. Now... One thing I've struggled with understanding is where this water came from. Because it would seem that water came from the jaw, as in the jaw that he possibly dropped. Because it says that he dropped the jaw, but it's not, it is that jaw, or could be that jaw. But it says that God split a place in the jaw um, and water came out of it and he was able to be revived. Now, that God split a place in the jaw and the jaw is the same name as that place, may indicate that God actually split a rock and water came from that rock. And he was able to have his thirst quenched. The other possibility is that God took a tooth out of that, that jaw that he had killed those men with and water came out of that. I'm not sure about that one there. I suspect it's probably the first. But he calls the name... In her core. So he actually names that particular place, which is also a combination of words, meaning the fountain of one calling. So it may indicate that there was a fountain which remained there, and I think it does say that it remained there till this day. So there was, I think, a continual fountain in that place that was named that because of a, a miraculous thing the Lord had done to rescue Samson from his um, from his thirst. 
So then the scriptures say he went on to judge Israel for 20 years. There is a slight difference, slight, actually a fair bit of difference between this chapter and last chapter. Last chapter, before he got married and during his marriage ceremony, I feel Samson was acting like a reckless young youth. And if you look at, if you look at even the, the way he's dealing with these, um, these Philistines, it seems that it's very personal for him, that they're actually attacking him personally and that's his prime motivation. But as you go further into this story, you find that he's praising God for what he's doing. So this we end, or thus we end this chapter in a more positive note than the last. We see even though Samson was focused on avenging the wrongs done to him, he brought about a great victory by the Spirit of God over the Philistines. We have discovered that Samson is, even with all of his rough edges and all of his faults, still being used by the Lord to liberate the, the Israelites even though they seem to just have accepted it because they don't rally behind him. They don't do anything to, to, to help out. The contrast between chapters 14 and 15 demonstrate to us that even with great problems in our lives, God can still use us to do good. Is there anyone who's perfect here today? Anyone who doesn't have any faults? The good news for us is that if God can use Samson, even with his glaring faults, God can use us. That by the grace of God, he can achieve what he wants to achieve. We can witness to other people. We can do good things. And even though Samson had significant faults, he also has, it seems, some good traits. Some good characteristics, as we've seen today. He has courage in the face of opposition. He loves his brethren and would not retaliate against their betrayal. He has great confidence in the Lord and his protection. In other words, Samson was being refined through a fire, but he was being refined. We can all take heart from Samson's life. That despite our own shortcomings and our weaknesses, God is able to build us up and by his grace we can grow we must simply be honest about our faults and recognize the strengths and the gifts that he's given us be ready to use your gifts always samson was always ready to use his gifts sometimes recklessly but he was always ready to use them and god was working on his faults use your gifts for the glory of god recognize your weaknesses and be honest about them and pray for God's grace to overcome them. With effort and faith, you can win. God bless you. Thank you.